0: All right, we once again turn to the subject of law and gospel, and I I had all the episodes completely misnumbered this morning, wrongly numbered, and so I think technically now we are officially on part 20, part 20 of our discussion on law and gospel. Like this morning, I had 17 like twice. Then I fixed that. Then I had 18 twice. And then, you know, it's numbers. You know, what happens with numbers? I'll get numbers wrong every single time. Every single time. Numbers are evil. I don't, so I need someone keeping track of which part we're on. Okay. All right. Here we go. All right. Here we go. I can remember that maybe. Okay. All right. Here we go. This morning we started we did spent an hour uh, kind of doing a test on how to properly distinguish long gospel in the book of Jude. Then the second hour we went back to thesis number 1 and remember thesis number 1 reads the doctrinal contents of the entire holy scriptures both of the old and new testament are made up of how many doctrines two and they differ fundamentally from each other. Law and gospel. Just the main thing is to remember, they differ fundamentally from each other. So, in our study, we've looked at the ways uh, that the the point, the way they do not differ, right? We looked at those. I'm not going to review them. Then we started talking about the true points of difference. And we worked on this this morning, all right? So, let's go through the true points of difference. The first true point of difference is, number one, The way they're revealed, all right? Law is revealed what way? Written on the heart. Gospel, three ways. Christ, Scripture, and the preaching of the word. All right, number two. So the uh, second um, way they differ. Contents. And what are the contents? Law? Do this. Gospel? It's done. All right. Simple way to put it. Number three. Promises, all right? And what, what is the main thing to understand about the promises? Law, when it comes to law. Great promises. They're awesome. They're amazing. But they will make you very discouraged and depressed because they will do what? Give you a promise and demand something you can't do. You can't fulfill. You can't accomplish it. And we spent some time looking at uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes is a good example. of Lots of promises there, but you can't pull that off. All right. And the gospel. It gives you promises and then it does what? No conditions. And if there, quote unquote, was a condition, it would fulfill it for you. Does that make sense? All right. In other words, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But guess what? Gives you the faith. All right. Does that make sense? All right. Threatenings. Threatenings of the law. Does anybody remember what we talked about in regards to threatenings of the law? Okay, it's nothing but threats. Okay, do what? What? what you say? Okay. We, yeah, we looked at uh, where the first law was and and the threats. I mean, just remember the gospel of the. The fourth difference between the law and the gospel relates to threats. The gospel contains no threats at all, but only words of consolation, where in scripture you come across, whenever in scripture you come across a threat, you may be assured that the passage belongs in the law, for the law is nothing but threats. It threatens and threatens and threatens and threatens, right? And, and, and how does that show up, and this is the main thing to remember, how does this show up in many evangelical churches who would say they believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone? What they do is they will take things and make it a threat, and they make it a threat in what way? If you don't do this, you're probably not saved. That's a threat. And that's what kind of a threat? That's a threat of law. Do this, and if you don't, You prove you're not saying... I don't know how they can say those words and then not turn around and realize what they've done. But the reason it happens is because we don't understand the proper distinction between law and gospel. So in some cases, we will say things that's law and not even realize we're speaking law. And we're speaking law into the gospel. And whenever you speak law into the gospel, what happens to the gospel? Basically, yeah, it's going to be destroyed and you're going to end up with law, all right? Then, what did we look at next? Number five, all right? The, The fifth point of difference between the law and the gospel concerns the effects of these two doctrines, all right? The effects of preaching the law is threefold. What is the threefold effect of preaching the law? Number one? Okay, it makes us more rebellious. It leads to rebellion. Law leads to rebellion. The more law you preach, the more unwilling the people become. Right? Which is just insane, but I've watched it as a pastor and you've seen it in so many ways. And it's something Christians have to understand. You can give the law of, the laws of God to people all over the place. It just makes them more unwilling. Right? Okay, the second, no, the second effect is despair. And then, third, depression. Because you can't keep it. You despair, the despair is because you see how guilty you are. Depression is because you realize, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. What's the point? What's the point? What's the point? What's the point? All right, everybody got that? And what are the effects of the gospel? Okay, it provides what the law demands, right? It's a, it provides. The gospel provides. Okay, second effect of the gospel, peace and joy. And number three, what did we say for number three? We only gave two because the third one in the book did what? Went through the whole thing that all these discussions end up that the gospel makes you able to do this and do this and do that and do this. And of course, it's just not true. I don't know why it would even claim that, but it does. All right. So that brings us tonight to what? Number six. The sixth point of difference between the law and gospel relates to to the person's to whom either doctrine is to be preached. It relates to the persons to whom either doctrine is to be preached. Right. Does this make some kind of sense, at least starting out? So There is a, there's a distinction between law and gospel, and sometimes that distinction of which is needed at a given time is important to understand. Sometimes people need what? Law. And sometimes they need gospel. Now, ultimately, they need what? Both. But there are certain situations where law is is the appropriate place and sometimes law is the appropriate place. Let's see how he handles it. And then we'll we'll shake it apart and see what we want to do with it. All right? Here we go. The person's... All right. Uh, The sixth point of difference between law and gospel relates to the persons to whom either doctrine is to be preached. The persons on whom either doctrine is to operate and the end for which it is to operate are utterly different. The persons on whom either doctrine is to operate and the end for which it is to operate are utterly different. So there's there's a major difference here. Okay? The law is to be preached to secure sinners. The gospel to alarmed sinners. The law is to be preached to whom? Secure sinners. Secure sinners. Now what do they mean by a secure sinner? Look in Matthew and see if you can find the story. Think of the rich young ruler? Anybody know that famous story that creates major controversy? Let's see who can find it first. Who can find it first? Who can find it first? Do what? Chapter 19 starts in what verse? 16, correct? Right, or am I wrong? Okay, right. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? First thing, do you notice the question? Okay, what kind of of question is that kind of question? It's a law-based question. What can I do? What good thing can I do? All right? Verse 17, And he said unto him, Jesus speaks, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, Keep the commandments. All right, that's all you got to do. Just keep the commandments so you're good to go. What, what is he? Now, you, that's crazy, isn't it? Because it's like, why didn't Jesus give him gospel? What does Jesus give him? He gives him law. Why? The person is asking a law-based question. All right. Basically, remember what I say all the time in theology, what I love to do? Is if you say something, go along with you, take it to its logical conclusion. And hopefully, by the time we get to the logical conclusion, hopefully on your own, what conclusion should you come to? You should come to that either your view is wrong or your view is right based off the conclusion that that logic takes you to. All right? It's a great way. Of debating. Oh, oh, because one, it disarms the person because you're agreeing with them. Okay, you're right. You're right. Let's go with your idea. Let's go with your idea. Now, when, when the train goes off the tracks and bursts into flames, hopefully the person who wanted you to go that direction will go, wait a minute, that didn't work very well. Now, sometimes what's frustrating is when the train goes off the tracks, they're still sitting there going, everything is fine. I'm like, no, the train is burning. It's not going well, but Okay. So, Jesus gives him what? Law. He saith unto him, Which? What? So, he's like, Okay, which, which commandments are you talking about? Which, which commandments are you referring to? Which kind of indicates maybe that he's, he, he's a little concerned, maybe? I don't know. But he's like, Which? And so, what does Jesus give him? That, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father, mother, love thy neighbor as thyself. Yeah, okay, those that relate to other people, right? Uh, those that relate to other people, right? And why, why, why go with those? Just from a, just from a logical per- perspective, why would Jesus start with the commandments that focus on our dealings with other people? Well, because it's easier to see the reality of how we treat people. It's not as easy to see the reality maybe of how we, oh, you know, I don't have any other gods. I worship God. I, I don't, when it comes to God, it's easy to say, well, I love God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul. But it's a different to say I love my neighbor as myself. Does that make sense? I can see my, my reactions to other people, right? So I think he starts with where, where things would be more obvious. And how does the man respond? I've done all of that from my youth. I've done all of these things. I've kept all of these things. Now, right there, what is that? That is a secure sinner. It's a secure. I'm using the language from the book. It's a secure sinner. He's completely secure. I've done all of this. I'm good to go. Then I'm good to go. I will argue the rich young ruler right there sounds like most of evangelical Christianity. <laughs> yeah, don't say another word. Okay, but I want to argue that this that right here he describes a good portion of evangelical Christianity because this is the whole lordship thing, right? MacArthur gives the test and everyone says. I have done these things for my youth. Okay? okay. Uh, I don't do this. I don't do this. I don't do this. I, so I know I'm saved. And if I come along and go, no, 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 no. That list that you think that proves you're saved? Well, let's really look at the test. It proves you're lost. And they're like, what are you, an antinomian? What are you? And I'm like, no, look at the test. <gasps> if you look at the test, what should you say? Well, then, no one is saved. What what should this young man have said? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know, I know I have messed up some way, shape, or form in these areas. It doesn't say that. I've kept them from how long? From my youth. Man, that sounds good. All right, so... And, and And like Bobby said, he should have just ran away, he should have just went. I, I kept these from my youth and just ran off. He should have just ran off. He should have just said, "Okay, I'm good, but he just left. He should have just ran off. He just of uh, yeah, <laughs> even in solitary confinement, you would have done something wrong because remember, you can break these in your mind much less in action, okay, So even in solitary confinement, he would have been guilty. All right? So then what, so then Jesus said unto him, if thou will be perfect, please note, if thou will be perfect. Why would Jesus, what is Jesus setting before him? The way to eternal life is perfection. (laughs) The way to eternal life is perfection. And then what does he say? Go sell thou, that thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now, this is the way the evangelical world takes basically Jesus' words. Yeah, you do that to prove that you're saved. The only problem is when Jesus says, go and sell everything you have, we're like, well, he didn't really mean that. Because he because didn't really mean that. I don't have to do that to prove that I'm saved. I just have to be, this is the way, the evangelical, the lordship way. You just have to be willing to do that. What does that mean to be willing to do something that you never do? Hey, Bobby, I want you to know I'm willing to help you with any building project you have. I'm willing. Just don't ask me to do it. (laughs) Just don't ask me to do it. Right? But isn't it weird how the lordship side will say, no, you do these things to prove you're saved, but I mean, you're not going to do them perfectly. You just have to kind of be with. No! Jesus demands perfection. So what would be the proof of one's salvation if salvation is determined by a practical righteousness? What would be the required proof? Perfection. Has anybody ever met that, that standard? No. Now, the good thing is, I at least admire the young, this rich young ruler. Because unlike many evangelicals who are like, well, you know, I'm, do, I'm pretty good. I'm do, at least I'm, I, you know, I love God and I love my neighbor. And convince themselves that they passed the lordship test. They pass MacArthur's test. Okay, which is just bizarre that you're using MacArthur's test, but that's okay. Or they even will claim they passed the First John test. The First John test should condemn everyone, right? Okay, but you should immediately—at least this young man. What, what's his, his response? Everybody read it. What is his response? He goes away, sad. Is that the King James word? Sad. What? Sorrowful. I like it's even a more stronger word. He goes away sorrowful. Why? He had, great he had great wealth. Meaning that he loved his wealth more than he loved his neighbor. So, guess what? If, rec- if fulfilling the law is the requirement, then what happens? We will go away sorrowful. Now, the text is bizarre because what does Jesus not give that sinner in one, one, in one place? Does not give him the gospel. Which has led people to you know do gymnastics trying to make this the passage make sense. But why does he not give him the gospel? Because what, is a, what does a secure sinner need? Law. Law. Okay? Remember, we're talking we're talking about the difference between law and gospel and, and as as far as the persons are concerned. Alright? The a secure sinner gets what? Law, right? What is the, who does the gospel go to? The alarmed sinner. The alarmed sinner. In other words, someone who is guilty and know they're guilty and know. But Christianity is bizarre sometimes, right? Sometimes it's the one who's fallen into sin that nobody comes to give them the gospel. They come to say, now this, and just throw more law at them. No, the alarm center needs the gospel. The secure center needs the law. So think about it this way. If you don't have a proper distinction between law and gospel, you typically will preach the wrong message to the wrong person. Amen? In other respects, both doctrines must indeed be preached. But at this point, the question is, which are the persons to whom the law must be preached rather than the gospel and vice versa? Right. In other words, both need to be preached, but sometimes you've got to know when to preach which message. Now, let me make it very clear, because this is where I get myself in trouble with the Reformed world, but you know, I don't care. My view has always been, you preach what's in the text. I don't believe in taking like, okay, I'm going to be preaching the text, whatever it is, and then here's this kind of theological system, whatever it is, Reformed, Arminian, law, gospel, whatever, and I place it on top of the Bible, and I just artificially place that into the text. The text tells me what to preach. So sometimes, what should a sermon sound like? Law. And sometimes, what should a, a, a sermon sound like? Gospel. Now, the, the concern is, and this is what they, that they would argue, well, but guess what? You don't, that, this may be the only message that person heard. They may not come back later and hear the gospel. I can't. Look, if I try to make sure that I preach everything a person needs in every sermon... Then basically, I just have a template, and I'm going to be saying the same thing in every sermon. And the text is just a pretext to get to those points. And you've listened to preaching that way. Every sermon, the point of every sermon is to say what you're a sinner and you need Jesus. Well, that that then the text doesn't matter because in some cases, the point of their sermon is that you're a sinner and you need Jesus. That has nothing to do with the text. Preach the text. I can't worry about. Well, are they going to come back Sunday night? Are they going to be here Wednesday? Are they going to? All I can do is preach the text. So I I do disagree that. Well, no, no, no. It's got to be both. It's got to no. That that's just artificially placing it into the text. But when you're dealing with a person individually, you have to determine if they need law or if they need gospel. Right now, they're going. He's going to add Some stuff here. This is what he's going to say. He wants you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. All right, everybody there? I'm just going to, let me see here. I'll use this one. I was just going to have y'all read it and then try to. Make y'all figure something out, but we won't do that. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. All right, here we go. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, and Okay, and for, and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defiled themselves with mankind, for men-stillers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. right, everybody see that? All right, now, that's emphasizing the law has seemingly a specific purpose and seemingly focused to specific persons, yes? All right, this is what they say. As long as a person is at ease in his sins, as long as he is unwilling to quit some particular sin, so long, so long only the law. Which curses and condemns him is to be preached to him. However, the moment he becomes frightened at his condition, the gospel is to be properly, properly administered to him, for from that moment on, he no longer can be classified with a secure sinner. Accordingly, while the devil holds you in a single sin, you're not yet a proper subject for the gospel to operate upon, only the law must be preached to you. So, their argument, secure sinners get what? Law. law. Alarm, sin- alarm sinners get the gospel. Okay? But I think the most important thing, look at 1 Timothy 1.8, read verse 8 again. Okay, a man using the law lawfully. We have to use it lawfully. We have to use it correctly. All right, we have to use it correctly. And I think it's been well, sadly misused. They go on to say, to poor sad-hearted sinners, I repeat, I repeat it, not a word of the law must be preached. To a poor sad-hearted sinners do not preach a word of the law. They don't need that. They already know they're guilty. They know they're condemned. They're guilty. They're overwhelmed. Woe to the preacher who would continue to preach the law to a famished sinner. On the contrary, to such a person, the preacher must say, do, do, but come. There is still room. No matter how great a sinner you are, there is still room for you. Even if you were a Judas or a Cain, there is still room. Oh, do, do come to Jesus Person of this kind are proper subjects on whom the gospel is to operate. Self-righteous, right? Uh-huh? Yeah, that, that's a secure center, and that's an alarm center. Secure sinner thinks they're good to go. They think that they obey. They think they obey. And there's too many secure sinners in the evangelical world who who are so self-righteous, they think that they can pass the test. They think that they're good enough to pass. That's what blows my mind. The lordship thing should break everyone because everyone should realize how far they've fallen short. But when we take these tests, like people will read 1 John, I'm like, well, I'm good to go. I'm like, if you read 1 John, you should be like... I'm never going to breathe again. If we understand that to be a test of faith and not a polemic against Gnosticism, you understand that. Or or we'll preach, you know, James and we'll preach it like, okay, if I don't do this and this and this, I'm not saved. Well, then at some point, do you realize how long that list is of all the things you're supposed to do to prove that you're saved? It's insane. Well, I'm talking both. MacArthur test, because he takes most of his tests from 1 John. right? So, I mean, whether the MacArthur test, the Jonathan Edwards test, you name the preacher, they all have their test, to supposedly prove that you're saved. Well, if anybody would look at the test, what should be? They should should not be a secure sinner, they should be an alarm sinner. But why do you have to be a secure sinner in that kind of system? Because you've got to convince yourself you actually do those things, because if you don't, you prove you're not saved. So then you've got to try harder to prove that you're saying it's just, it's law, law. The whole thing is just one law-based system. I'm, I'm telling you, everyone in that system, they, they should just, I don't even understand why they claim to be Protestant. Go join a Catholic church, for crying out loud. Just be honest and be Catholic. I'd have more respect for that. Because it's just Catholicism. I, would, I, I can respect that. I can't respect the fraudulent, fake Oh, we're reformed. There's nothing reformed about it. <laughs> okay? Luther would condemn you to the 10th level of hell because you would be just like, you're no different than the Catholic Church. Because it would lead to the same despair that he, he was trying to escape from, right? Luther was trying to escape from despair, not create a system that promoted more... Or create a system where you have to pretend. All right. That concludes thesis number one. Any questions about thesis number one? Yes? No? Are we good? Let me look online make sure there's no questions. Because if I can answer it now, it saves me time having to do a different broadcast. Okay. I don't see any questions. All right. Everybody got thesis one? All right, that brings us to thesis number two. All right, so I'm assuming y'all y'all got it all down. So if I ask any questions about thesis one, y'all ready to go, right? All right, okay, I'm going to say that's a yes, all right. Here we go, thesis number two. okay? Only he is an Orthodox teacher who not only presents all the articles of faith in accordance with the scripture but also rightly distinguishes From each other, the law and gospel. So who's the only one who's an orthodox teacher? Who can present all the articles of the faith and do what? Rightly distinguish between law and gospel. All right. This is how the book handles this. And we'll be, again, taking it apart, see what we agree or disagree with. This thesis is divided into two parts. Does everybody see the two parts of the thesis? Where are the two parts? I know the difference between law and gospel. All right. The first part states uh, a kind of a, a requisite of, the, of an Orthodox teacher that he must present all the articles of faith in accordance with the Scripture. So all the articles of the faith must be taught correctly in accordance with the Scripture if you're going to be an Orthodox teacher. Everybody got that, right? All the articles of the faith in accordance with Scripture. Now, you know there's a million problems with that. Okay, and what are the millions of problems with that statement? All preachers think they're presenting all articles of faith in accordance with the Scripture, but yet all preachers disagree with each other, so obviously we can't all be preaching the, all the articles of the faith in accordance with Scripture if no one agrees. So, what, what's the reality? The reality, all preachers should be preaching all the articles of faith in accordance to the Scripture. The reality is, is all preachers preach the articles of the faith according to them. That's just the hard, cold reality nobody wants to admit. All right? Everyone preaches the articles of faith according to them. And then, and you say, well, man, preachers are garbage because they do things according to them. And everyone in the pew believes the articles of faith according to them. So the scriptures are completely irrelevant to Christianity. And if anyone says that they are, they're a liar. Come on, let's just be honest. What is, what is the sole authority in Protestant Christianity? The individual. I know that I'm just, now, right now I'm getting, people are getting mad at me online, but it's just the reality. I mean, I mean, at some point you've got to stop playing games. We can say the word of God is the final authority if you don't even study it. <gasps> so don't tell me it's the final authority. Because I can preach the scriptures all day and still what will happen? Disagreement. 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 Sometimes that disagreement's not even based off study. It's based off what? If it's not based off study, what is it based off of? Personal opinion. So in reality... We should just delete that first statement. An orthodox teacher is one who teaches all articles of faith according to the scripture. Because it's just, it's, I'm sorry, I don't believe it for a second. You preach what you want and the people will believe what they want. And they will find the preacher who will preach what they want. And the minute they don't like what you, what you have to say, they'll go find what they want. It's just a game. Yeah. Well, I mean, they have their do- confessions just like we have our confessions. I mean, the Book of Concord, the Apostles' Creed, we we could go through all their doctrinal statements, but the the bottom line is nobody preaches the articles of faith according to the scriptures. They all think they do. But in reality, everyone is preaching what they want. And, and, and I hate, I hate saying that. I wish it wasn't true. But if people were really focused on the scriptures, preaching would be, it would be so radically different. You wouldn't get a 30 minute sermon, 40 minute sermon with three points and a nice little outline. You'd be getting like, okay, man, all right. What is this trying to say here? Okay, what's going on here? Okay, wait, we got to try to figure this out. Oh, wait, man, I don't understand. Does anybody know what that means? I don't have a clue what's going on here. Wait, that seems to contradict this. Wait, that, what are we trying to figure out again? Does anybody remember where we are? But when you can package it up in a nice little sermon, no, man, the scriptures, it it comes down to the skill of the pastor to present an entertaining speech. An emotional, compelling speech. Pastors don't preach scripture. Pastors preach sermons. And the more that they can structure the sermon in a way that meets human psychology, hits human emotion, they will be successful. And if they don't follow those rules, they won't be successful. I know that's a. <laughs> I know this is a very cynical way of looking at it, but I'm just. I've reached the point that I'm just. I, I just man, you just you can find any article on a Christian website and just watch the, the arguments happen in the comment section, and it's just insane. Everyone quoting a scripture, telling the everyone else is a heretic. This person's a heretic. This person's a heretic. This person's wrong. This person's wrong. And it's just like whatever, man. I don't even care anymore. Everyone's going to believe what they want in it. and I've reached that I've really reached that point where it's just like whatever. I do believe the Bible's the word of God. I do believe that. I do believe it's inerrant, it's infallible. I do believe it's true. I just don't believe it is that any pretense that this is the authority is just a complete lie. And I know saying this on October 30th is probably blasphemy because it's you know it's almost Reformation Day. But what what have I always said? What was the unintended consequences of the Reformation? Everyone became a pope. I'm not saying that's what Luther intended, right? Because what Luther said no. The church is not the authority. Scripture is the authority. And what did everyone hear? I'm the authority. And guess what? And I will justify my authority by what? Scripture. (laughs) Well, Scripture can't be the authority if you and I have a different opinion, right? Because if the Scripture is the authority, then we should find the same opinion because it's only one book, right? (laughs) Right? Well, Well, I think, we, I think we do in theory. I don't know we do in practice, right? Practice, I think we become, we become the authority. Just We don't even mean to do it, but it just happens. So I have a major problem with the first statement. I wish it was true. The Orthodox teacher in the modern church is one who preaches what he wants, and the people in the pew will believe what they want. All right, Scripture requires that we have the word of God in absolute pure and, unadul- and unadulterated and that we be able to say... Now, this is just... This paragraph is absolutely insane to me. Okay. Oh, man, this paragraph. I have so many problems with this paragraph. All right. Just try to listen to it. What is, I'm going to try to read it correctly, but try to listen to it. All right, here we go. Scripture requires that we have the word of God absolutely pure and unadulterated. Now, for the scripture to be pure and unadulterated, pretty much what needs to take place. If If you need the scripture pure and unadulterated, pretty much what needs to take place. We all have to die to self in like a way that we don't even understand. Because the minute we open it, the minute we read it, and the minute we start speaking about it, thinking about it, interpreting it, immediately what happened to the word of God. And now, the word of God remains pure and unadulterated, but we corrupt it because we come with ourself. Right? Does that make sense? Right? The word of God remains pure, but we, we, nobody can get to it because we're in the way of it, if that makes sense. Now listen to this. Oh, this is crazy. And that we be able to say, when coming down from the pulpit, I could take an oath upon it that I have rightly preached the word of God. Oh man, what a great theory. That I could step out of the pulpit and say, I can take an oath upon it that I have preached the word of God. I can never take that oath. And you can never take that oath that you've studied it purely and that you understand it purely. To even say that we can take that oath is ridiculous. And then they go on to say, I could take an oath upon it that I have rightly preached the word of God. Even to an angel coming down from heaven, I could say, my preaching has been Correct. This explains the paradox remark of Luther. This is what Luther used to say. That a preacher must not pray the Lord's Prayer when coming down from the pulpit, but that he should do so before the sermon. For an Orthodox preacher need not pray after delivering delivering his sermon, forgive me my trespasses, since he can says, since he can say, I have proclaimed the pure truth. Right. Which goes against the entire understanding of the law and gospel. And Luther himself is the one who said that. Which is insane. This is completely nuts. If the preacher has a depraved nature and he preaches, what happens to the preaching? It's impacted by the presence of a sinful nature. So guess what all preaching has in it? Let's just go through this. Okay, here's the preacher, right? Just imagine that I have like a a picture here of a person, right? Okay, me, right? When the preacher, what is true of every preacher? Number one, well, well, slow down, guys. Okay, I know y'all want to call me a sinner really quick. Just slow down. Fallible or infallible? Fallible. All right, now that's, that's where you have to start. Fallible. Second, Depraved, have a sinful nature. Three. Human. Why is that important? Because a human has emotions, feelings, thoughts. Right? Are all those feelings and emotions... What, what's what? What's always a danger to truth? What's an? What's always da- a danger to truth? Emotion. What does emotion cause us to do? Reject truth or change truth to our liking. Right? When our emotions get... The, the word, once emotions get involved, what happens to truth? Pop, pop, pop! It gets shot. Because emotions get in the way... When, emotions blind us to the truth. It blinds us to the truth and it causes us to do what to the truth? Twist it. Right? We all know that. Like, when you get emotional, it's hard to see the reality. Right? And so, because you only see it through the lens of emotion. You can't see truth through the lens of emotion. So, let's, let's take this concept. You have a preacher. Let's go through those three things. Number one, fallible. Number two, depraved. Number three, human. So, uh, so what should you expect in every sermon? Imperfection—that's the best way to put it. Imperfection is going to be in every sermon because because the, it, it, the person is involved. I would never be able to say, as Luther did. <laughs> Let me read it to you again. This is just no wonder. I mean, a lot of people throughout history say Luther was insane, okay? And there's certain parts of him that sometimes he's like, he was insane. He you're in Luther! you know how much of a sinner you are, and now you're like, I can step out of the pulpit and say, I preach the Bible in a pure are you out of your mind, Luther? Don't you remember all the times you were confessing your sins? That same Luther who kept confessing his sin is the one now preaching. That's, that's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. All right? Luther, remember what he said, all right? The preacher must not pray the Lord's Prayer when coming down from the pulpit, but that he should do so after the sermon. For an Orthodox preacher need not pray after delivering her sermon, forgive me my trespasses, since he can, uh, since he can say, I have proclaimed the pure truth. So he only he needs to say, forgive me my trespasses before I get in the pulpit because after I'm done preaching, I can simply say, I have preached the word of God in a pure way. But the sinner who walked into the pulpit is the sinner walking out of the pulpit. And guess what that sinner was doing while he was in the pulpit? Handling the word of God. But he's a sinner. That's just... This is nuts. This, this is like, this, <laughs> this is crazy. All right. So before we move on, okay, I got to look at the time. And that's okay. I'm, I'm taking this in a completely different direction and that's okay. And I know it's offensive to people, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm slowly but surely obliterating this entire thesis because, because I just think there's so much just not true to it. All right. So number one, remember the first part of the thesis. What's the first part of the thesis? Presenting scripture, all of the articles of faith in accordance with scripture. Why do I believe about that statement? Now you may disagree, but I don't believe it's true because I don't believe it ever happens. Okay. Why? Because we, because we, we have a, ten- we get in the way. We preach things in accordance to self. Because again, just think about it logically. If everyone was preaching all the articles of the faith in accordance with the scripture, what should be the end result of that? Say it? Agreement. The fact that there's no agreement, something's wrong. Are you going to say something's wrong with the Bible? Then that has to be something wrong with us. And where do the problems start? In you and me, I tend to preach it in accordance to me, and you tend to believe in accordance to you. And we all are the authority, and I don't care what we say, Scripture hasn't been the final authority for most believers for a good portion of their life. That's just the reality. Praise God that my salvation is not dependent on the Scripture being the final authority in my life, but that God saved me in spite of that. I wish it was the case, I want it to be true. But it's not true. All right? And that every pastor is, I want to make sure you remember every pastor, what are three things true of every pastor? Fallible, sinner, human. So every sermon has problems. Sometimes they're just the human mistake of mispronouncing a word or reading things incorrect or saying things wrong. Sometimes it's a complete misunderstanding of the text. They're sometimes manipulating the text for one's own emotional reasons. Or trying to manipulate a response from the people. And then you sit there and as listeners, what is true of all the listeners? Fallible, sinners, and human. And what does that create? Creates an environment where everyone believes what they want to believe. That is a horrifying truth. But if we don't come to that truth, I may argue this. There is no pure preacher and there's no pure sermon. There's only pure scripture. The only thing pure is God's word. The only thing orthodox is God's word. We can come up with an arbitrary list of what makes someone orthodox and we'll say that we came from scripture but someone else will take the same scripture and come up with a completely different list of what makes them orthodox. (laughs) Does that make sense? Now, listen to what they say in the next paragraph. Those first two are already a little disturbing. Let's see what they do in the third one. Suppose someone could truthfully say, there was no false teaching in my sermon. Still, his entire sermon may have been wrong. This goes to the second thesis of the, the second part of, article of the thesis, right? Okay, because here we go. The second part of our thesis says so, only he is an orthodox teacher who, in addition to the other requirements, rightly distinguishes law and gospel from each other. This is the final test of a proper sermon. Now, i got no problem making it a final test. Just make sure you understand that we get everything, we get everything wrong. We don't deliver the articles of the faith in accordance to the scriptures because we get in the way. And guess what? We don't properly distinguish between law and gospel because we get in the way. So, in reality, all sermons are flawed through and through and through. They are. And guess what else is flawed? The hearing of sermons by the people. Amen? The value of a sermon depends not. Only on this, that every statement in it be taken from the word of God and be in agreement with the same, but also on this, whether the law and gospel have been rightly divided. Well, again, just take that part. The value of a sermon depends on the fact that every statement in it be taken from the word of God. Well, if every statement has to be taken from the word of God, then my sermon would be me not talking. It would me simply be reading scripture. But that's not how it works, is it? Now, a human has to take it and try to preach it. And as soon as the human gets involved, what comes with it? Fallibility, sin, and humanity. And you're not going to get anything pure. Everyone has to just accept that. I've got to, you've got to accept what I am, and I've got to accept what you are. The problem is everyone wants to act like that we all are the orthodox, you're the orthodox hearers, I'm the orthodox teacher, and we all have it right. But even though we disagree, everyone will still claim they have it right. I'm just going to read the last paragraph here, really. Because there's not much more to add. I know I've just obliterated this entire thesis. But that's okay. Because we have to be, look, when we, that's the thing. When I, if I'm using a book, I don't, I'm not bound by said book, right? Okay. Well, we, I, why do I use books sometimes? I use books because they give you de- their perspective and you hear my perspective. You get two perspectives. But, I, but you can go with which way. I mean, if you think differently, that's Okay. I just think 2,000 years of church history will prove that I'm right. Scripture is not the final authority. We're the final authority. There is no pure sermon because of of who's in the pulpit. And there's no pure listening because of who's in the pew. But what remains pure and unadulterated? This does. Okay? Okay? So and, and those, those are the things that happen. All right, last paragraph here. It is it is a wrong application of the gospel to preach it to such as are not afraid of sinning. On the other hand, an even more horrible situation is created if the pastor is a legalistic teacher who refuses to preach the gospel to his congregation because he says these people will misuse it anyway. Are poor sinners on that account to be deprived of the gospel? Let the wicked perish. Nevertheless, the children of God shall know how near at hand their help and how easily it is obtained. Anyone withholding the gospel from, from such are, as are in need of consolation fails to divide the law and gospel. All right. So what do we do with thesis two? What should we do with thesis two? I do believe that a preacher should strive for a proper distinction between law and gospel. I do believe a a pastor should preach the word of God in accordance with the scriptures. I do believe that. All of that is true. We we should. But the reality is this. I, I cannot stress this enough. The reality of Christianity is that the preachers preach in accordance to them Christians listen in accordance to them. The pastor believes in accordance to him. The people in the pew believe according to them. And the scriptures, no matter what we say, they have not been, nor have they ever been, the true authority. We have established our authority early on, and we have demonstrated that authority over and over and over in 2,000 years of church history. And what has it resulted in? Church splits, one denomination after another denomination, after another another denomination, disagreement, fighting, arguing, calling names, attack, 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 attack. Because we all think we're right. But if it was in accordance to the scripture... We should all be in accord. At least put it this way. If it was truly it was truly according to the scripture, our disagreement should be about like that. There wouldn't be 10,000 different Protestant denominations. So, what you say so what's our proper response in all of this? All all we can ever do all we can do is try to pursue the scripture. Just even though the church, that's, that's the reality of Christianity. The truth is, this, it doesn't change what? This. All of that irritates me. All of that I am disgruntled, frustrated, sick of, tired of. I don't want to argue with anybody else anymore. I don't care what anybody believes. I literally have just become so like. You don't even know. I just don't even care. Someone wants to argue whatever. Believe whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Anything I say doesn't matter. So on that part, I've just become so disillusioned. The only thing that I still hold to is this is the unadulterated, pure word of God. So all I can do is pursue this. I'm going to try to pursue it and then I'm going to try to teach it in a way that removes me and makes us have to find what it says in here. Now, that destroys the sermon. Right? Because that kind of teaching does what to a sermon? It obliterates the sermon structure. The sermon would just be like, okay, I, I, can, I can play the game if people want to play that game. I go home. Guess what? All right, we're going to preach on, on this next week. I'll grab two or three commentaries. All right, got the outline of the passage. Boom, boom, boom. Change it up a little bit, okay? Oh, wait, do they have a nice little closing illustration? Oh, wait, get online. Sermon illustrations. Oh, there's a sermon illustration. Cut and paste. Boom. All right, now we go. And then, and then 45 minutes, I can give you the three points and the nice little sermon. And people are like, oh, that was so good. It felt like church. Thank you, pastor. It felt like church. That's the problem. Everybody wants a sermon. Nobody wants what? Because if we go to this, do you get three nice little points? You're like, wait, okay, what's going on here? Wait, what happened? Okay, all right, let's try to figure this out. Let's try to walk through this. Let's try to stumble through it. And stumbling through it, is it always nice and easy and put together? No. But what's the goal? Understand. The goal is when you're done, you know the book. You don't know the sermon, you know the book. Right? What should people remember when a sermon is over? The scripture, not the points of the sermon. I, I early on in my preaching, wanted you to remember the points of the sermon. At some point, I realized. Well, wait a minute. That makes the sermon the authority, not the scripture the authority. I got to get you to the scripture. I got to get you into the script. I have to get you into this. And that's all. That can look really odd and weird. And how and try to do, try to do that. Every preacher would say, "No, I'm preaching the scriptures. You're preaching your sermon." You know, all the big scandal broke, you know, when they found out that famous pastors, Mark Driscoll and others, used the sermon writing services. Hey, you pay $100, $200, whatever it is a month, you tell them, I'm going to be doing Romans. Boom. They send you the introduction. They send you the outline. They send you the survey. They give you sermon illustrations. They give it all to you. And do you think anybody cares sitting in the pew? No, they just want the three nice little points and a nice little sermon. That's the problem with the church. We're drowning in sermons. And, and after all of the sermons, what do people still not know? I've said it so many times. The sermon gets in the way of the scriptures. That's just the reality. So in thesis two, we, all we can do is strive to be quote-unquote orthodox. And I will say orthodox is preaching the truth according, in accordance with scripture and a, a proper distinction of law and gospel. That's what we have to strive to do. Is it ever going to even come close to perfect? No. I want to make it very clear. The best preaching and the best listening will always be imperfect. And that's what we have to understand. The best sermon is going to be corrupted because a person is involved. And what is three things about the pastor? Fallible, sinner, and human. And what is three things about every person sitting in the pew? Fallible, sinner, and human. And that creates a mess, does it not? All right, let's pray. Well, God, we come before you this evening. Very, very difficult realities that we face. But Lord, I would pray that we would be willing to face those realities instead of pretend something that's not true about the church, about Christianity, and about ourselves. Forgive us for the times we've pretended. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,